managing all of that, understanding how much energy goes into being a mom and still doing well at work, I felt like a superhero. And then I would go to the office and attend these lectures of female empowerment about how we need to do this and, you know, we need to be more assertive and ask for things. And I just thought, dude, who's teaching the men how to be more like us? Because we are holding the world together right now as moms. Hello, and thank you for joining me here on Hope to Recharge podcast, the podcast that's designed to break the stigma around mental health and to create some hope and inspiration and give some practical tips to those that are struggling with mental health, whether it's from personal stories to break the stigma or some advice from professionals in the mental health community. Whether you are struggling with mental health on your own or you know a loved one that is struggling, we are here to support you and to create a community so you you know you are not alone. The road to recovery can be difficult and challenging. At Hope to Recharge, we believe that in mental health, together is always better. I'm your host, Matana. Thank you for joining me here today. Hello, and thank you for joining me here again on Hope to Recharge podcast. Today, I have a female that is going to rock the house with I think her loud voice, why do I love loud voices in the female world? Because very often we're shut down and very often we're afraid to talk our voice and very often we're skeptical. How will the world receive it? And what's going to be the backlash? And am I going to suffer from this? And I'm going to say women. Yes, I'm going to say women because sometimes I grew up an Orthodox woman. And as an Orthodox woman, I have it even double or triple. Like, what's my community going to say? What's my family going to say? What's my children's school going to say? And then I have the world. And it's really really, it could be a big boundary between us, our mind, our thoughts, and our conversation. And I have today the lovely Marissa Orr that wrote the book. Why are you cringing? <laughs> oh, I was smiling. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, She's lovely, lovely, lovely. <laughs> and I think her, her book, Lean Out, is a book that every woman in the workforce should read and not only in the workforce i think women in general need to read it because it's so it's so deep in a way that i think marissa really broke down so many misbeliefs and so many i think world leaders that taught us to think certain things from young age from school from from playground certain things about being a woman, being a woman in the workforce, being a leader. What is a leader? What is a woman? What is our, what is our responsibility? Who are we? What do we want to be? And sometimes in the workforce, we talk about the Me Too movement between male and female, but the Me Too movement can really be between female and female. This cattiness, this rat race, the, the who's going to be bigger than the other? Who's going to reach the top first and why? But can we just show up authentically of who we are, what we want, what is good for us without the world telling us how to do it and put all these roadblocks along the way? And when I was reading her book, it was so refreshing to me because I'm a deep thinker. A lot of times people tell me that I think out loud and I'm naive to think that it's not going to impact me in life. And for many years until I was like 20, I, I really wouldn't voice my opinion. And I really think that my mental illness, my depression that came at age 33 came from suppressing so many 
ideas that I wanted to think out loud or discover myself or understand, but I was afraid to. I was really afraid to. And I'm grateful for Marissa for just bringing up the conversation, for allowing us to think, for allowing us to to voice our opinion, even if other people that are that seem to be much bigger and scarier and louder are thinking otherwise. So Marissa, thank you for joining me here today. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah. And um, I was just telling Marissa that I'm quarantining in Israel. This was unexpected studio recording right now. We traveled to Israel last minute for the holidays, and I'm excited that we were able to make this happen. And I want to give Marissa a little bit of a background of my workforce, and then we'll compare. And I'll tell you, Marissa, why I was so shocked reading your book. I grew up in Israel. My my family is very orthodox, but we came from a, a legacy that women are empowered. Like my grandmother, my great-grandmother, legacies, my sisters, my cousins, my aunts, each one is a leader in her own way. And we shine from each other. We really shine from each other. We don't take each other's spotlights and we we empower each other. We're proud of each other. We're literally proud of our legacy, of our sisters. Of my, One of my sister is the CEO of the largest nonprofit women entrepreneur workforce in Israel. So she's all about the women. Another one is in a drilling company, an oil and water drilling company in Israel. Another one is running her own company from her home that employs many, many women. It's incredible. It's really incredible, but we, we're not a competition. We're together. And I grew up in a place that we empower each other. Then I had a mentor that took me into the largest software company. She was the CEO, Rachel. She picked us out. It was all of us working by her, all of our sisters. We worked by her. And each one, she gave a different job. And what was so unique by her, she made sure to see what you're good at and make you exactly what you're good at and not compare you to anybody else. And she really empowered us. And what we are today, I think, is a lot to our parents and to her. So when I read your book, I was shocked. I'm like, wait, is this what's happening in the world? Now, granted, I didn't work in corporate America, so I don't know. And maybe I was naive. Maybe I was 20-something years old. I worked there only for five, six years. Maybe I was naive. But reading what you went through was heartbreaking. I want you to give a little bit of a background before we jump into my questions um, about your book and how it impacts women in their mental health and their and their family life and their for their children for their spouses for their friends. I want you to give them a little bit of a background. How what made you write this book and what did you say? Enough is enough. Yes, yeah, so I've always been really passionate about the topics around gender, and I've read. I mean, I could have my PhD. I think in in. Uh, sociology, other psychology disciplines. And I was working at Google for about 13 years. And just around the time Lean In came out, it became really women empowerment became at the forefront of the national conversation in a way that it, it hadn't before, which was great. And Google started all these programs and workshops aimed at helping their female employees succeed. So being really passionate about this, I attended everything. And after a while, I became really disenchanted with, with these programs because they just, there was a lot of issues I had with them, but they lacked, they didn't seem real. They kind of uh, stayed at the surface. It kind of seemed to be co-opted by 
people that were just trying to use it as a platform for visibility in their career. And we weren't really discussing the very serious challenges that women face. So for example, I'm a single mom of three kids. And, you know, we didn't address any real sort of practical changes to our organization. Everything was, the onus was on women to change. And we would attend these things and we would be sort of lectured on all the ways that we need to change. And essentially the undercurrent, the subtext of it was change to be more like men, which I found, you know, just insulting because the women that I know are like sort of the maybe invisible, but heroes of, you know, the world and every woman I know was sort of pulling double duty and, and working really hard. And I decided at some point to write my own perspective on this topic and deliver it as the presentation. So I did that. It was a side project. And then it started to grow into a series of lectures. So I was super excited about it. And my passion is speaking and helping women and writing. So I thought, you know, maybe if I do this for 10 years, I can, you know, turn it into something full time. But then in February of 2016, I left Google after 13 years and I started a new job at Facebook. And, and part of the impetus for that was, well, there were, I'll, I'll get into it later, but essentially I was excited that Facebook was really at the forefront of this conversation with Sheryl Sandberg having written Lean In and being the COO of Facebook. Um, and I thought, you know, I could really sort of expand, you know, I'm sure they'll support that lecture series. And I had all these kind of hopes and dreams for how that would turn out. And as I talk about in the prologue of the book, which is the story you're referring to, the story of how I came to write this, what happened was at Facebook, I mean, it was the, it was one of the, I was there for 18 months and actually I was fired, I was fired from Facebook and I go into this in the book, but my anniversary of being fired was yesterday. So it's been exactly oh my goodness. Yeah. So what happened was, as I say in the book, um, I had this meeting with Cheryl Sandberg and I went in there, you know, and, and we, she was much higher than me. I wasn't reporting to her or anything, but we're from the same hometown. We both have this interest in, in helping women. We, we both worked at Google. So I reached out to her. We had this like lovely one-on-one -on -one meeting. And really, I saw it as an opportunity like to get some attention for the, the women's stuff. But what happened was the woman who recruited me to Facebook, she was a, a senior executive. I referred to her in the book as Kimberly um, shortly after I started. And Kimberly and I, I, I didn't really go into detail too much in the book about this part, but we had actually had this courtship on over many months before I finally decided to go to Facebook because I was very happy at Google. But Kimberly was like very over the top charming, like said everything that, I, you know, that I always love to hear. You know, it's like she knew exactly what to say. And we were, you know, I'd say friends by the time I started. But then a couple weeks in, she completely turned on me. And from there, my life was a living hell. And the the reason I found out later on was she was pissed about my meeting Cheryl. She saw it as, you know, she interpreted it as like some political power move or something, which was so far from any of my intention at all. But she really had a big target on my head from uh, this third week that I was there. Again, I say give the story in the book, but she... She stopped. She wouldn't return my emails. She wouldn't meet with me. She deleted our meeting. She wouldn't even acknowledge my existence in public. 
and it was infuriating and humiliating. And I went from this really awesome career at Google where, especially the last few years there, I had really established a respected reputation and, and uh, felt like home. I was there for, so I kind of grew up there from my early twenties through my thirties and, you know, my kids and getting married. And I had lots of friends there. And at Facebook, I was just invisible. It was worse than invisible. It was like, I was like contagious, you know, but you know, it was very clear that she had sort of, you know, she was very senior, much more, you know, much more senior than I. And she kind of made it clear that, you know, what the story was about me and, 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 you know, it wasn't good. And, you know, it was just devastating. I, I just didn't, like, I would go to Google and had friends and, you know, I love the people, not everyone as I write about in the book, but I had, you know, great friends there and, and I was trusted and I loved the work I was doing for the most part. And then at Facebook, I was just treated like a child and like a nothing. And, you know, when somebody with that much power decides to target somebody lower than them on the chain, it's hard for other people around you to rally behind you because they're afraid of, of this person. And people just would, will say, you know, it's not my business. Who knows? I'm going to, you know, mind my own business. And I understand it because, you know, this is your livelihood and, and you don't want to risk that. Mm-hmm. And, and for somebody that, you know, you don't know that well, and maybe you could see stuff's going on, but you're not sure you don't want to get involved. You know, in a way it's like, I watched its documentary on the Harvey Weinstein thing recently, and it's not the same thing at all. I'm not comparing my, you know, what happened to me to what happened to those women at all. What I'm, what I'm saying is the reaction of the people around them. It just struck me as I was watching it, their reaction was to turn a blind eye because they were afraid. And that's what I'm comparing the people around me, even people, you know, there were one or two people I worked with every day that started to see me and understand what was happening. And even though they, one or two of them were quote unquote friends, it's just, you know, these are people, they don't want to lose their job. Everybody kind of knew I was a walking target. I knew I was going to be fired. So to get back to the question, this experience at Facebook was so terrible. I felt so invisible. I was so, I went through so many phases of like, I was depressed and then I was anxious and I, I just felt helpless. And then one day, you know, I put the lecture series aside, but then after, I don't know, eight or nine months, it was clear eventually I was going to be fired. And everybody was telling me to go back to Google or find another job in tech or whatever. But at some point things got so bad. I was in such a dark place. I started to kind of ask myself, like, who am I and what do I want? You know, the, you only ask yourself that stuff when things are really bad. Exactly. And when I was honest with myself, what I wanted was to pursue my lecture series, right? Turn it into a book, live more of like a creative life and, and um, be a writer and a speaker. And so I started, I took it seriously. I started writing the book proposal while I was still at Facebook. I'd wake up like every morning at 4.30, work on it for like an hour and then get the kids ready and get them to school. I'd go to work in the city. And then the day came where I was fired, but I had, or I had just finished the book proposal at that point. And I had worked on the book proposal for, I don't think I've ever worked on anything so hard in my life. It was Mm. months and it was just such a late, like it was, 
intense. And so when I was fired, you know, it's, it's even though you know it's coming, it's still shocking in the oh. moment because it's like it's, your your whole it's identity. It's a punch to your gut. It's a punch to your gut. And I'll never forget, I was driving down the West Side Highway on a Wednesday and it was like five o'clock and my manager who was in California called me and we had a meeting. I didn't know what it was, but I dialed in from the car and she was like, look, you know, your recent, your improvements in performance aren't enough. Like we have to let you go. And here's, you know, the HR person to give you the details. And she hung up and then I talked to And so I remember crying so like on the, the way home over the George Washington bridge, I was just like in hysterics. And then I was like 10 minutes away from my house and I pulled myself together and I thought, this is the universe giving me a kick in the pants yes. to do the thing I've been terrified to do because for the preceding, I don't know, five or six months, every weekend I'd go through my budget to see when can I quit? Like when, you know, I'll wait till I get this, you know, bonus or I'll wait till this, you know, thing comes in or this. And every time it got pushed back and pushed back mm. and I just didn't have the the guts to quit. You know, I'm a single mom. You're a single mom. You have to, you have to pay the bills. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm fine. You know, I'm financially independent. I would have, this seems so irresponsible. And scary probably like frightening. It's very scary. But when you're fired and that decision's made for you after I cried, I never looked back because I always thought this is a great gift. And in general, I look at my experience at Facebook as a tremendous gift because you asked what made me write the book. I mean, it was always in me and I always, but what really made me commit was realizing that work was not the place I thought. It's not as safe as I thought. I felt very safe and comfortable at Google. And had I stayed there, I don't know if I would have written a book and, and you know, been pursuing my dream full time. I just it scares me to even think about what would have happened if I would have stayed. I was so comfortable and it was always in me, but what really forced me to do it was being cracked open by Facebook and feeling at my lowest and sort of, I guess, rise from the ashes, so to speak. Yeah. And I I find it a lot that people hit rock bottom and in order to bounce back like a, like a ball, we always say like we, we, we don't take risks because we're afraid to lose, but we don't understand how much we get to gain if we take the risks of following our passions and our dreams. And a lot of times it comes, as you said, with a rude awakening, like a divorce, a, yeah. mental, uh, a mental illness, a physical illness, a, a firings, a death mm. in the, uh, something that gets us to think, okay, we're here on the planet for what, 80, 90 years? Out of those years, how many years are our productive years? Let's make mm. it something meaningful for us and because we're on the paying the bills the rat race we need to do and we I my mother always says who's the we of the world that you speak of and I'm like the the society she's like you always say they they we I'm like she's like who who are the they and I'm like the world. I said, we get married so young. No one prepares us. No one tells us what it's like to, like to raise children, to raise ourselves, to grow, to change, to evolve, to go through life crises, to take it slowly, to think that we change with life. No one really prepares us for this besides the kick in the stomach, uh, that punch in the gut. They're like, okay, now you have to think really fast. And usually in crisis, we don't think the best. Usually we have to like really 
get our mentors in and like the support and say, well, what do we think? And then when the noise quiets down, we can go, like you said, what do I really want? Yeah, that's true. I also, though, it wasn't like, because, you know, I know it takes a lot of courage to do what I did and walk away from 15 years. And like I had a very lucrative career, you know, two of where Facebook used to be um, prestigious, but Google, you know, some of the best companies to work for. And I honestly think the hardest part, though, was afterwards, was the daily grind of anxiety of like, okay, I did this and now I saved up enough money to give me some runway. What did I do? Because now I'm home working every day for my, like, nobody's telling me what I need to get done. Nobody is, you know, I could spend two years writing a book and never sees like nobody ever reads it. And then I have no money. There were so many risks involved here. And the first year and a half, I mean, every single day was tough, bad. It's like battling that you just have this background static of anxiety constantly. And, you know, like in my family, my parents, my mom is the daughter of Eastern European immigrant Jews. So they came over from Czechoslovakia. They didn't speak English. They built a life. They picked, you know, picked themselves up by the bootstraps, all that stuff. So in my mom's, you know, being the daughter of immigrants and they were, everything was like, you're, you go to, you need to go in business. You know, everything's business, business, money, money, support, money, responsibility, everything. And so that's why even in school, in college, I majored in like decision and information sciences. It's like almost like a computer science. And I got my master's in it. It was never me. I always hated it, but I always had, you know, those ways, like I got to do it. So when I didn't go back and I, you know, said, no, I'm going to write this book and be a speaker. And, and, you know, we didn't really talk about it in my family for like a year. It was like, we didn't even mention that I was writing a book because nobody understood it. It was like, what is Marissa doing? Like she's Midlife crisis. She's falling apart. She needs help. Yeah, to be fair, I'm very close with my parents. Yeah. I have a wonderful relationship with them. But to you know, so to be fair, they were scared. Here I am taking care of three kids by myself. I think they were scared for me, and, and it seemed like such an unlikely, out of the, like left field kind of decision. So it was tough because not only do you have this anxiety for yourself and and, and question your own you know decisions when you can't really talk about it with people, it it makes it hard. Some people I could, and and, and some people were super supportive and I'm so grateful for that. But I guess I just say all of this because, you know, um, people should know what to expect when they make these big risks, take these risks and make these big decisions, especially to go out on your own and leave that world. Some people make it seem like it's, you know, oh, you got to do it, just hustle, hustle. And yeah, that's true. But you know, you also need to be aware of the reality of just how tough it really is. And I, I don't regret any of it for a second. Like I said, I, it scares me to think about what would have happened if I didn't do it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's tough and, and it requires sustained courage over long periods of time, which is the hard part. And you say courage, and I really think it is courage. That's the right word because 
the fear freezes us sometimes. It really uh -huh. freezes us. Like, and, and we have this fire in us to do what we, what we feel like is our gift, what we can, mm -hmm. our legacy that we can leave in the world. But then the fear of, as you said, but like, what if no one's going to buy my book? What if no one wants to hear what I have to say? What if someone bigger is going to shut me down and come and bite me because I'm- What if my book is horrible? Like, what if yeah. it's so bad and everyone right. laughs at me? Right, right. And then- two, three years down the line and I'm starting from ground zero and I have three children that I need to feed and was I responsible? So courage is, it's real courage to say, I'm going to go after my dreams. I'm going to trust in my gut. I'm going to take this sign from the universe, from God, from whatever you call it to say, okay, it's time. And as you said, if you would stay in Google, you probably would never leave your comfort zone because it was like a nest. You got your paycheck, you had your okay. friends, you were doing the, something that you liked. So why would you leave? Right. And, and people will say to me, well, do you, you know, do you regret? Because you, you talk about Google very fondly. Not so much in the book, I mean. <laughs> but I'm just, you know, I use my examples of working there to prove a point. But generally, I had a great experience there. But here's the thing. I was always you know, I would say the last five years of my career searching, there was, I just felt like even though I had this great career and I had, you know, I worked at Google and, you know, on the outside, everything looked great. And I, and I was doing work there that I liked. I always felt this gnawing inside that there was more in me that I, I needed to express like so much of my thoughts and feel, I felt compelled in some way to express a part of myself that I couldn't at work. And I, it started to become a fear of never living up to my potential because I knew there was, I had a vague at first feeling that there was some potential I had that had to be expressed. And over time, it, the fear of not living up to my potential, not expressing this thing that I have, became greater than the fear of leaving the corporate world. So it was like until that equation, until the fear of not doing what I feel I was born to do was, I felt it more than I felt the fear of leaving the safety and security of that world. And then once that balance shifted, that's when I, I was able to have the courage. You say that so well, and it's really true that we hit a, a point in life that we're like, okay, which fear is bigger? The fear mm -hmm. of disappointment and regret or the fear of failing and getting up and doing mm -hmm. something or, or picking up the scraps and figuring it out. And it's really mm -hmm. like that. And, and, and sometimes the universe really sent us the, the kick and the start to do it and say that you have no choice. This is the time. Living with mental illness can be full of pain, frustration, and anguish. At times, it can feel like you are completely alone. Well-meaning loved ones may not understand what you are going through and might not be able to offer the support you need. Finding the right source of support is crucial to your journey of healing. While we always encourage you to seek appropriate medical and psychological help, adding someone to your team who has been where you are can provide a much-needed shoulder to lean on. Matana knows what it is like to feel debilitating anxiety, and through her own journey of more than a decade living with mental illness, she has spoken with hundreds of others navigating their own anxiety and depression. 
Matana is not a therapist or a doctor, but has been able to partner with many individuals like yourself, creating a strategy toward mental, physical, and emotional well-being. One-on-ones with Matana are self-paced conversations allowing you to move forward at a comfortable pace. She'll work with you as you discover your own path and the steps that are right for you. To schedule a free 30-minute consultation with Matana, head over to hopetorecharge.com forward slash free. That's hopetorecharge.com forward slash F-R-E-E. Or you can click the link in today's show notes. And now let's get right back to Matana and today's conversation. My question to you is, do you think being a mother gave you so much more of education of what you wanted to share with the world? Like you had an idea mm-hmm. of what, of your thoughts and the way of, about female in the workforce, females in general, and then becoming a mom just gave it to another degree of clarity of like, wait, there's something so wrong about what we're taught out there. You know, it's such a great question. And it's funny because I'm literally planning out my next podcast episode, which is about this topic. So I have some thoughts on it, but I'm just thinking as, as I'm talking about how I want to say this. So yes, because first of all, I had three kids in two years. Oh, you have twins. Yeah. My second pregnancy was, um, not planned. And then I found out it was twins at some point during the pregnancy. And I was terrified because my older son was really only, you know, a baby at that point. Um, and so I had three kids under two, so I had two newborns and a two-year-old. And then a couple years later, I was separated. And I was at that time doing it full-time. I, they, I had them for a period of time full-time and had this job at Google in the city. And I guess managing all of that, understanding how much energy goes into being a mom and still doing well at work, I felt like a superhero. And then I would go to the office and attend these lectures of female empowerment about how we need to do this. And, you know, we need to be more assertive and ask for things. And I just thought, dude, who's teaching the men how to be more like us? Because we are holding the world together right now as moms, like doing everything. And I would, um, I tell the story in the book of this guy named Ed that I used to work with. That's not his real name, but he worked from like 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And he had three kids just around the same age as mine. And it was, I was fascinated by him because, and I liked him. We were friendly, but it was like his kids just didn't exist between the hours of seven and seven. He never had to think about them, worry about them. It was like he got to bring his whole self and energy to work every single day. Where like I would rush in like half crazed after having lived a lifetime between the hours of 5 a.m., I've right. been with three babies with no one serving then, you coffee and, and you'll right, be lucky then, if you got a sip of coffee. Right. Right. <laughs> so I just saw how much we were pulling, like the double duty of managing it all. And then trying to pretend that we weren't because, you know, you can't super you know, woman. You, you I can't have my makeup that, on yeah. and my high heels and I'm all yeah, put together. You can't be that like yeah. crazed mom in the office. And so right. 
I think it solidified or crystallized my feelings that, God, we're getting something wrong here because, like I said, women are like the invisible heroes of this world. And, you know, just, you know, I, I just felt like we weren't, um, we weren't looking at it right. And I think that having those, having my kids and, and, and life just being turned upside down in a short time made it really clear to me um, and probably gave me the confidence to speak my mind on, on the topic. You, you speak in the book, we can't go into exactly what you, there's so many things that I wanted to discuss from the book, but you split it into two. What, what was the misconceptions and things that went wrong in the second half, like I think from chapter seven and on is like what you dream and what you think is right. And, and, and the way you wish the female showed up in the world, how we were educated, how, how we, we were given grace, understanding, how each one is unique to themselves. And there's no, there, there's no, uh, you, you said it in such a nice way. I think it was in chapter six. And I want to give you the opportunity to share it because it was like, wow, this is it. If we only got it, you describe. I might get it wrong. You described an event that they did from, I think it was either Google or Facebook. I don't remember. And they gave you your personality description by oh, color, the, okay, the red, the yeah. green, and you were the green. And then you, yeah. uh, and you raise your hands and like the leaders, what color are they? Right, right, to, right. To tell that story because it really story, yeah. defines exactly what's broken. Really yeah. what's broken. So the, really the book I wrote the, the journey to write it was the story of Facebook and Google, but that's not really what the book's about, right? The book's an attempt to answer the question, what have we gotten wrong about women at work? And I didn't start with the answers. I just started with that question. And over time through research experience insight, I started to understand and that story you're talking about was one of the most formative in understanding this from a new perspective. And what happened was so we used to take these personality tests a lot at, for team offsites at Google. And, um, you know, they help you understand yourself better and how to communicate with other people. And I love stuff like that. I know some people, you know, poo-poo it, but I just really enjoy it. It helps me like learn more about myself. So um, this particular offsite was in, in headquarters of Google Mountain View. And we did this extensive survey. When we showed up, they handed us these like thick black booklets with the results. And they were really these very in-depth maps of our personality. And on the inside was one of four colors to represent which of the four major personality types that you were. So mine was a green and it meant that I have a strong drive to help people. I strive for harmony. Relationships. I prioritize my relationships right now. And, and I joke in the book that that was like the hippie group, which is like, nobody wants to be in that group in a corporate sales meeting. Right. right. (laughs) So, so, and, and I joke, but it's true. They, they don't even just call it green. They call it earth green. Oh, are you serious? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so the opposite of green is red and they call that fiery red and reds have a strong uh, drive. Uh, for pa- uh, power and control, they're competitive and they prioritize results over greens like me who prioritize relationships. So the HR person tells us to get in groups by our color. And as we're like dispersing, this question just pops in my mind, like, well, what are the colors of our senior executive team? Because I know such a great question, exercise. by the way, such a phenomenal <laughs> question. Thank you. Um, and 
after a whole long thing, because she, you know, didn't want to divulge, but turns out that like nine out of 10 of them were red. And I always, when I, I speak a lot to audiences and I always, ask, I like let them answer it. I say nine out of 10 were, and I mean that I've, done this for thousands and thousands of people. No one has ever yelled out green. Like maybe or one yellow. Is or yellow. <laughs> well, I, it was just, yeah. I give them the option of the two. Right, and right. the reason is because it's so obvious, right? In, re- in, re- in hindsight. Power, but, red. Yeah, power, control, Also like red is stop, like a stoplight. I tell you what to do, how to do, right? It's like authority. I never think about it that way, but yeah, authority. And the insight for me was um, around motivation because in the corporate world, right? Like people that are driven to the very top to break that, you know, that glass thing or whatever, if you're a man or a woman, it's mostly they're motivated by power and authority because there are, it grows as you get promoted, you manage more and more people, you have mm-hmm. authority over more and more people. But if you're a green, like me having authority over people like that is very uncomfortable and unrewarding because authority and relationships are in tension with each other and everyone's more motivated by one or the other. So like, for example, if you're on a team with a couple of your best friends for years, and then suddenly you're promoted to be their manager, let's say like you really flex that position, like, oh, I'm the boss lady. Now you're going to listen to me and you get all strict. What happens? Your relationship suffers with them, right? But if you do nothing and you just act like their best friend, like nothing changes and your authority is undermined. But can it happen? Can it really happen? Can you be someone's manager and the relationship doesn't change? Well, that's the, that's the point, right? It's like relationships and authority are in tension with each other. If you dial one up, the other goes down. So it's very hard, if not impossible. The point also being that as human beings, everyone's more motivated by one force over the other. So if you're really motivated to forge uh, strong relationships, um, authority is formal. Authority is less appealing. If you're very um, motivated by authority positions, then relationships are less important. Not not important, but in that context. So the point being, I was up for a promotion at the time at Google, and I was being forced to uh, manage people where I had been an individual contributor because Google's policy is once you pass a certain level, and I was at that level at that point you have to start managing people. And so my point to my manager then after the colors exercise was, but I'm not motivated by management positions. This is more of a punishment for me. So can I just, you know, be granted an exception to the policy and remain an individual contributor without having to manage people? And, you know, because this is an issue of like motivation. So why wouldn't we give good performers what they actually want? And so basically she said that our senior team had heard this argument before, but they just didn't buy it and they felt it was imperative. And then here's really the insight that was dumbfounded. I'm like, why wouldn't they want to motivate their best performers by giving them things they actually want instead of like things they feel punished by. Uh, But over time I really learned what no business book ever told me, which is what I saw as a simple difference in personality others saw as weakness. So the policy was really designed to weed people like me out. I was considered as lacking ambition. And so the point I make in the book is that a lot of people, not just women, but a lot of women um, and men 
get stuck under the glass ceiling, not because they lack ambition or they lack competence. They simply just lack anything meaningful to work toward because work is a zero-sum game. So competition, corporate world is a zero-sum game because competition intensifies the farther up you go. Spots become more scarce. You win the position, I lose. And that's really appeals to a very specific personality type, which is why they turn up red. And so I was trying to show that, you know, like in Lean In, she, Sheryl Sandberg considers, you know, the lack of, of part of the reason there's the lack of female, you know, CEOs in the corporate world is because there's a lack in ambition. There's a gap in ambition. And I'm trying to point out, actually, there's no gap in ambition because ambition, it can be applied to anything. You can be ambitious in your journey of motherhood. You can be ambitious mm-hmm. athletically. Like you can be ambitious creatively. Just not um, at your job. Like you'll just be just not right. in the court. No, no, right. I mean like not to get to the top. Right, of right. You can have structure. a passion and ambitious in certain yeah. part of your life. That doesn't mean that every single right. a part of your life has to have that same ambition. Exactly. Exactly. So it's a very long-winded um, answer to the question or the story, but I think it's really a central point in the book, and and people love that story. It's 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 fascinating. But what happened at the end when when they pointed out that most of them are red, and you're like, why don't we have greens? So it's interesting because in the room, the initial gut reaction by most people was. That's not fair. Why are we only promoting this one certain type? And I remember I said at the table, well, maybe it's just that the other types don't I want, want those positions as much. Right. I, I'll never forget that because that's what sparked the insight that that really grew into so much of my perspective that, that's in the book. And I, I remember, well, maybe they don't want it. And I just sat with that for a long time. And in the room, it was like, okay, and we moved on. You know, it was, we didn't, we went on with the exercise. I, I was the only one probably still thinking about it two years later um, right. as I'm, you know, putting the book together. Right. So nothing right. really happened in the room. But it's by, basically a choice. It's funny that you're bringing this up because that's, ex- I was talking to my sister and um, one of her things that she tries to do in her company is to empower women to work within the workforce in Israel. They're Orthodox women. So to empower them to do the best they can with whatever talent they have. So let's say they could be a great artist, but they don't know how to sell. They, they could be um, a great um, computer programmer, but they don't know how to be in a meeting properly and they don't know how to integrate with people. So they, they teach this stuff. And she says one of the biggest conversations that she's having with the hierarchy of the world that are not Orthodox are like, why would we want to take a programmer that does the nine to five and she's going to give birth because she's orthodox every few years or maybe even every year. And she's happy to have the eight to three low salary, no growth. And they're like, well, why should we take her? Because she has no greater expectation. And my sister's like, why don't you just let her do what she wants to do and be okay with that? And she's going to give the best performance as she just told me about this. And she's like, why can we just give them the choice to do what they want? So it's funny you say this because I, I was ju- I was just going back to I once I read the Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacs many years ago, and I was just looking through it this morning because I was trying to find a reference for something I'm writing, 
And I read the part I underlined about Steve Wozniak, who started Apple with Steve Jobs. So mm -hmm. Steve Wozniak was really, they call him Woz. He was like the, the brains in terms of the, the engineering behind Apple. And, you know, we hear mostly Steve because he was the face. But there's this passage about how Wozniak was very happy in the beginning, how they structured it, because it meant that he could remain an engineer and code all day and not have to be a manager and that he could relegate all that stuff to Steve. It's the same thing like at Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg is really focused on the product and the strategy while Cheryl runs sort of the organizational. There's these, uh, there's these partnerships that exist at the top of tons of high where, you know, the CEO, has a part. So if they're better at sort of the scaling and the organizational aspects and the processes and all of that, they become like the Charles Sandberg. And then the other person who's more creative or likes to, wants to code or get into the strategy, they become the Steve Wozniak or Mark Zuckerberg. What I always say is, how come they're the only ones that get to, quote, lean into what they're good at and they love to do? Everyone else is expected to be both. And I think, you know, it's it's a similar point to what, you know, your sister is is having conversations about. If you're really good at coding, if you're really, and you love it, and you're really good, or you're really good at writing, or you're really good at sales, this happens in every industry, you're forced to stop doing the thing that you love to do in order to manage. And both the worker and the company lose. And the reason is because we're just stuck in this this is the way it's always been done. If you have a triangle as the structure, advancement means moving up into management. Well, it doesn't make sense anymore. This was created, this structure is from 200 years ago in the industrial age when they were making cars on an assembly line. You know, it may, maybe, it, well, I don't think they were making cars 200 years ago, but you get my point. Like, yes. you know, this is such an often repeated refrain from people that, you know, some people want to dig in and do the work and, and they love it and they're good at it and they're happy with it. But we force these arbitrary definitions of success and ambition. And then if you don't fit that. And raises and bonuses and yeah, all that stuff crazy. that comes along with it. And we put in the work and the coding is really behind everything. If you have somebody that codes really well, what's the company without the code? What's the product without the it good code? It makes coder? no sense. It makes right? sense. And there's one other thing I want to mention that's totally relevant here. The research shows that compared to men, women have more life goals and they're of a greater variety, whereas men have fewer, but they're more focused on money and rank in their career. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is women desire balance and flexibility so that they could meet this larger variety of life goals. Their life goals aren't as tethered to work as men are. Mm -hmm. And so, but because we've held up men as the benchmark that we're measuring ourselves against, it seems like we're falling short because we're measuring women on positions at work and their salaries at work. But women value flexibility and balance more to meet that larger variety of goals. I'd hardly call more goals less ambition, right? right. It's just ambition that's either um, focused or it's spread out a little bit, which is why so many of us want balance and flexibility. And when, when you say things, when somebody says things like, you know, 
you can't stay as an eight to three, blah, blah, blah. It's not ambitious. It's like, no, it's just not that person's definition of ambition. Right. And their life priorities or um, what my life values are different. And it could be that my life values will change in 10 years when my kids get older or Mm -hmm. I develop a career. Let's say I'm going for a PhD or something like that. Let's say it could be that my core values will change, but give me the ability to have the choice and don't minimize my performance just because Mm -hmm. I'm not ambitious in what you want to. But what my sister does say, they have the, they have, the corporate world can say no to me. And that's the hard part. Like they could say, okay, you don't fit our description, but that's what you're trying to break in your book to say, let's right. open our mindset a little bit. Let's be a exactly. little bit of like, let's not do that triangle. Let's be a rectangle. Right. Maybe let's be even like a different shape of like, right. a, like a vase. Like it doesn't something. have to be this race, like right. this competition where we're all against each other. And the only way we win is at the, at the expense of the people around us because the team doesn't get promoted. One person from the team gets promoted. So they're all competing. And at Google and Facebook, you can't, your performance scores are, you're ranked relative to your peers. So you're either better or worse than the person next to you. Mm-hmm. And it creates, and women actually prefer and are more motivated by collaborative environments, win-win. So it's to- it's like not only just like becomes this toxic competition, it's just very dispiriting for many women who really um, thrive in more win-win environments. And then we bring it home and then our, our kids suffer, we, our mental health suffers, mm-hmm. our physical health suffers. And I, my, my question is to you, what do you wish your book teaches the world and enlightens the world that mm. like when you sat down to write the book, you're like, okay, my goal is to teach the world. I didn't have an express sort of, I don't think that I had a way to think about it. I do now in retrospect. Really, I wrote the book that I needed to read starting out my career mm. because I didn't know what game I was playing. Mm. I thought that we, I had this naive sense that like you work hard, you, you advance and everybody really were working in the best interest of the business. I didn't realize this whole power political game was happening around me and I felt deceived. And I also wrote it. And I think that I, I wanted women like me to feel heard and understood. I think that's really the key because I felt like something was wrong with me during my whole career because I felt like I was working just as hard, doing well, doing as well, if not better than other people that were just rising way ahead of me. I felt like when I did do good work, I couldn't use it as currency to do what I really wanted, which was have flexibility. And it's just like, it was a world that didn't, make sense. And I didn't fit in and I thought it was me. And then I writing this really put into perspective that it's not me, that this is a very, this is a a game. You know, like if you think of different contexts in life as different games, a songwriter is playing a different game than somebody that wants to be the CEO of a multinational conglomerate. And those games have different rules, like, you know, the, you know, and so I, I didn't, know that and you didn't know the rules of the game and no one told you what happens when you don't go it's like the shoots and ladders when do you fall and how fast how deep do you fall and how fast do you rise and no one told you the rules well right and and when it comes to women specifically and it became such a big topic i just never 
identified with the women leading that conversation. Their challenges weren't my challenges. Like I just didn't hear anyone represent the truth. And there was such a, like, you know, I, I don't feel eth- like morally superior to the corporate game. I, I really don't. It is what it is. My issue was nobody's honest about it. We pretend it's like, you know, that's what got me because had I known from the beginning what it really was, I would have played it differently. Not that I would have done any better per se, but at least I would have understood. I could have played it differently in a way that, you know, benefited me. And I could have understood what other people, their behavior would have made more sense. And I wouldn't have blamed myself for things. So um, for women particularly, because I just know how much how hard we work and how much we put on ourselves and how high our expectations are. And then to be, you know, get out there in the world and be so like, you know, just like be this and be, I just feel like women are always telling people are always telling women how to be in a way we never do with men. So I started a podcast in March. It's called nice girls. Don't watch the bachelor, which is an irreverent title. I actually love that show, but it was because I was once in an audience at a women's thing and the woman that went on before me, she was kind of this fire and brimstone, like women, we got to rate, we got to sit at the table. We need to raise our hands. We need to ask because it's not fair. Men get this and we need to stop. And she's like, we need to stop wasting our time on silly little things like watching the bachelor. And that's the one where I was like, Oh, we can't even watch the bachelor now. Like, I was like, that's like, why do we have so many opinions about what women do? Stigmas. Like the t-shirt story that you write, I'm not a little princess. I'm uh, right, right. What was it? What was it? I'm not a little princess. I'm a girl. Yeah. But that point at the conference that I, I, I was thinking of was like, can you imagine a man standing up in front of a group of men and being like, we need to stop wasting our time watching sports. We need to, you know, people don't do that to men in the same way they do to women. And it, it, it sort of makes me annoyed. So that was another point I, w- I was getting at. But yeah, the t-shirt, I saw my daughter's friend was wearing a shirt like, I'm a princess. And then it had princess crossed out like, no, I'm a smart, talented girl. And I just kind of thought, oh, so, so judgmental of what women, like my daughter at the time loved princesses. Does that mean she can't be smart and talented? It's like the, conver- the, the efforts with women have gotten so out of control that now anything that is girly or, or traditionally feminine is put down. And, you know, I understand where it comes from because traditionally women were subjugated and, and oppressed. And so part of, of the rebellion is to rebel against the stereotype of, you know, what women are supposed to be. But it's misguided because now we're punishing women for being this, feminine, you know, feminine or, or, right, and, right. and a tradition, have traditional sort of girly okay. attributes right. when the point is freedom to be who you are, wherever you fall in that right. dimension. If you're, you know, totally nothing like that traditional stereotype or you're everything like it, if that's you be you, like it's the judgment of it. That's the problem. So that that's sort of what I was getting at with that t-shirt. And I will take it to another level. What if I'm not a talented, smart girl? What if I'm an average girl? So what does that mean? Right. I'm X'd right. out completely. Like I'm a nobody. 
Like, right. let's give us a permission to just be who we are and show up exactly. and, and, and show up authentically with, with who we are, with our talents or with our passions or whatever it is, without someone telling us how to show up. I know you have to go. I have two more questions. Is that okay? okay. Yeah. I, I want to know what was Facebook's reaction? Did you hear from Cheryl about your book? No, I didn't. She has like way more things going on. Like to, I, first of all, she's smart enough not to mention my book because here she is. She has a global platform. She's one of the most powerful women in the world, billionaire. Like I have, I am coming out of nowhere is an unknown name of just somebody that, you know, had something they, they wanted to say. It's very, um, time consuming and taxing to get awareness for my book. If Cheryl Sandberg was like, lean out is the worst book in the whole world, blah, blah, blah. I would be like so happy because then finally people would have heard of it. Like, yay, <laughs> she's talking about it, you know? Yeah, bad like, publicity be, is publicity. That would be the best thing for me ever because right. the past, you know, year, all I've been doing is just like, you know, nose to the grindstone trying to get the word out. So she's smart enough to know not to mention it. And, you know, because she has a platform and I don't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So anything she says would just sort of give attention to something that otherwise people might not have know. So yeah, no. And they're trained. People at Facebook are trained very strictly on the kinds of things they're allowed to say and they're not allowed to say. And they're even just like mentioning my book or doing anything would be um, too risky. So were you scared to write the, to take the title lean out? That's so gutsy. That is courage. So the original title, <laughs> so it wasn't the original title. Um, but it ended up being like, a, I, we made that the title, like, I don't know, four months before the book came out, because first of all, it's just a great tie work to marketing for so many years. So it was a chapter in the book was called lean out. And then one day I was just like, no, that's the title of the book because being the underdog, having sort of no social following, no name, no currency, being an, a total unknown, the title has to be, it has to grab you and it has to be provocative. But the truth is, it's also does capture the fact that it is a counter argument to um, conventional wisdom on, on women at work and, and the gender gap and, and all that stuff. So I thought it was true to form, you know, it was an honest capture, but it was also in two words really conveyed a lot. So, um, no, I wasn't scared. I, I was excited because I was so happy with that title. Mm -hmm. Um, it wouldn't have gotten as much attention when it came out as it did had I gone with something else. Right. And I'm also not scared because I didn't go after her as a person. I didn't attack her. It wasn't like I was just trying to tear people down. I was attacking her argument. And, you know, I don't even talk about her after the first or second chapter. So, you know, 10 chapters of the book don't even mention her. Right. But um, I needed something that really caught people's attention. Otherwise, it would have, you know, gathered dust on some bookshelf for many years. <laughs> I think I think it was a very very powerful book, and you know what I I think about other female um, leaders. Look at Sarah Blakely; she empowers the people underneath her. She makes them like she turns to them for advice. 
Well, she's different because an entrepreneur who starts their own business and grows it to what she has is very different than a Sheryl Sandberg who climbed an existing corporation. You could argue she really helped grow Google and she did, but she didn't. And, and this goes back to her partnership with Mark. Mark's the entrepreneur, like create ideas, like bring it to life person. And she's the scale. So once an organization shows potential for growth and it needs to scale across millions of customers like AdWords did for Google. That's where Cheryl is an amazing, she's brilliant when it comes to scaling an organization. It's a very different type of person though that takes the risk as an entrepreneur to start a business. So I think- But as a leader, as a leader, and and she's impact, she, she doesn't feel like because one of her employees are super talented in something, she doesn't get scared by them. She's because she's that's her baby, right? Like she started that company and she wants the company to. So no one's going to replace her as a CEO and the founder. She cares about the product that's part of her. Like she was put on. You're saying it's more common to have female. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's Uh, more. A person like Sarah. It makes sense to me that she's not, you know, the type of of leader because she spent years, you know, trying to get that off the space off the ground. And and she took so many risks and had so many doors slammed in her face. Mm -hmm. She cares about that. That's her lifeblood. You know, it's different when you enter a company that already has thousands of employees and million customers and you're trying to grow it. You don't have, you don't have skin in the game in the same way. But I also think the way she talks about women in general in in the workforce or yeah, she's she, she she just says it as it is. You're a mom, you're a soccer yeah. mom, you're a carpool, and you're gonna be messy and you're gonna be and you're gonna have hiccups and that's okay. And be yeah. real. And I think yeah. the bottom line is when we show up, when we're secure with ourselves and we show up authentic with who we are, no one can really come in our way in what we believe we are. But that takes a lot of years of building that it muscle. It takes a lifetime. I yeah. work on it every day. And, it, it, you know. it really takes a lot, a lot of courage. And I'm just thinking about the book Belinda Gates just wrote. And she had the career change also. And she's like, wait, I don't want to be working so late. I want to be home with my children. And she had some kind of a career change early on. So well, she's also married to the richest person in the world. So but, she has the talk luxury. About, I know, but she talk about power. She talks about, I'm going to lose yeah. my power. Do I want to lose my power to I'm going to have to read her book. It's phenomenal. It's fun. Okay. I, uh, Marissa, we could talk for probably five more <laughs> hours. It's fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you for educating the world. Thank you for being the voice. Thank you for giving the book, the, the script of what it's like to enter the corporate world that we should just know we should just know what's the rules of the game that we're not shocked like you were and so unfortunately yeah. some people really have a huge crisis in their lives because of it so thank you for having the courage for leaning out thank you for having me i just want to share quickly my social handles where people yes. can find me on instagram twitter i'm also on linkedin it's marissa beth or so my middle name is beth b-e-t-h Marissa Beth or O-R-R. And my 
podcast is Nice Girls Don't Watch The Bachelor. Um, and the book is on Amazon and everywhere. Books are and you have to read the book. You have to read the book because it's fascinating. For somebody from the corporate world, it's fascinating. Thank, thank you, you so for much. Thank you for joining and thank you for giving me time. And I hope so much change will come from your work. I really hope so. Thank you I for joining so us. Thank you. Have Thanks. a great day. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Are you looking for online therapy? Are you stuck at home like everyone else? High stress, high anxiety, worried about the future, trying to navigate everything, have a lot of worries, have a lot of emotional roller coaster rides up and down, just like me. BetterHelp.com is one phone call away, one Zoom call away, one text away. It's an online platform for therapy. It's so perfect for now, for coronavirus, for what people are going through now. We can reach out and get the perfect therapist that meets our needs. Don't wait. Check them out. See if you can find somebody. Don't struggle. They're so affordable. They are so affordable. You're sitting at home. Every therapist is working online now. Reach out and get help you need. If you are struggling, don't struggle in silence. I am so grateful that they are giving us 10% off the first month so you can get affordable access to therapy. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Start your wellness, get help, get support you need. Thank you for joining us and taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it. Please hit the subscribe button so you can hear further episodes. If you are listening to us on iTunes, please leave feedback and ratings below. Let us know if there's any topic that you would like to hear from us in the future. Bye till next time.